Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, about the everyday challenges of being a GP. This week, we are talking about cow's milk protein allergy. We'll be discussing diagnosis and management with paediatric allergy specialist, Dr. Nicola Brathwaite, including what to discuss with parents and how to navigate the thorny issue of conflicts of interests in guidelines. I'm Navjoit Larder, clinical editor at the BMJ and a GP in London, and I'm joined by the regular deep breath in gang, Jenny and Tom. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Navjoit. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor, GP, and clinical editor for the BMJ. And hi, Tom. Hi, Navjoit. Um, thanks for calling me part of your gang. It's <laughs> very nice. Uh, I'm Tom. No- I feel like I'm part of your gang. Oh, well. <laughs> we'll have to think of a name for it. Um, you are a fearless leader. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm Tom Nolan. I'm a GP and a clinical editor as well at the BMJ. Great. Well, thank you both. Um, so, cow's milk protein allergy. Um, I don't know it's one of those consultations that I think is a pretty common in in primary care, um, and seems relatively straightforward on the face of it. But there can sometimes be you know, a lot of things going on um, like under the hood of a consultation and behind the scenes and can be uh, challenging to diagnose. Um, have you seen um, any many patients with uh, suspected milk allergy, Jenny? Yeah, I have. Um, I used to see a lot of babies um, when I was in the Bronx as well as in Cambodia, whose parents were quite concerned about um, funny looking uh, substances in the baby's diaper, maybe mucusy, or even sometimes, frankly, bloody. Um, that would always raise an alarm for cow's milk allergy. People would also be concerned if they um, felt their baby was having some reflux. Like invariably, the next question was, could they be allergic um, to cow's milk protein? Um, I think it's so challenging because you know, testing is pretty complicated. It's a lot to ask, especially a breastfeeding mom to exclude dairy from the diet on the basis of a trial. And the allergy symptoms can manifest in so many different ways. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's one of the real challenges, isn't it? It's kind of the over, it, it overlaps with the presentation of, of various other things. And that's something we'll be talking about in our interview coming up. And actually, we'll also be talking about um, exclusion in um, breastfeeding mothers as well, because there was something in there that surprised me about that. But um, before we get onto that, Tom, have you experienced any challenges um, when seeing people with, uh, well, seeing infants with uh, milk allergy? <laughs> uh, definitely, definitely. Um, I feel like I've been on a bit of a journey with it like 10 years ago or whenever when I was in training I'd probably never heard of it I'm sure you know I can probably honestly say that I probably missed more than one episode case baby who who might have had it um and I think partly that was my own (laughs) sort of not being very good but partly the awareness of this problem was really not there I'd say 10 years ago and then suddenly it became very very well known and I think a lot of parents were reading more about it than, than I did and then I managed to catch up I think uh and now I think I'm I'm okay and got a reasonably balanced uh and and enough expertise on it probably I mean, that, that's now sounding a bit overconfident uh but yeah it's it's interesting how these things go and I think I'm going through a similar thing at the moment with um, menopause and HRT and uh 
uh, <laughs> and maybe vitamin D is a slightly different story but um you know there's these isn't it funny these personal journeys yeah. we all have um with mm-hmm. specific conditions and where we get to with them yeah that's so, so interesting and it often it often follows the more public kind of awareness mm. of, of the problem yeah yeah um well and I mean speaking of kind of topical things and public awareness one um thing that I hadn't been aware of when we recorded this interview was the uh, milk shortages in the US which have been in the news recently and Jenny I know you've obviously trained in the US do you have um friends or colleagues who are affected by this yeah I I do um and it's really scary actually um so for listeners who might not be aware um a really popular brand of formula um, was recalled because of four hospitalizations and two deaths in infants, um, and they suspected a bacterial infection in the formula brand. Um, But this was all on top of kind of pre-existing supply chain issues and worker shortages brought about by the pandemic. So um, it's kind of... Um, this disaster on top of a really stressed system. And, um, you know, I've heard stories and, you know, newspapers around the country have reported people needing to drive hours just to find stock of formula, Um, people going to pretty extreme measures to find ways to feed their children, including looking up kind of home home, uh, recipes for uh, formula. Um, people trying to ration or stretch their baby's formula. Um, I, I'm aware of one doctor who works in uh, New York who has a supply of formula milk samples, and a lot of doctors' offices do, uh, just to give to people who are in particularly dire emergencies. Um, and there's been kind of a crop of responsive guidance that has come up around this. Um, so thinking in particular about the kind of overall health picture of the infant and their age, trying to transition the, um, the meeting, the nutritional needs of older children, particularly nine to 12 months with other foods and supplements, people being encouraged to increase their breast milk supply. But also I thought one really interesting part of this is uh, an increase in donations to donor milk banks and people seeking out uh, human donor milk to try to also feed their babies. Um, But last time I checked, there were only something like I want to say around 11 to 15 human milk banks in the U.S. That number might have grown uh, in recent years, but um, that's not so many. And probably not every community has one and people might not be familiar with uh, its uses or the fact that the milk is ultra pasteurized and all those kinds of things. So, yeah, it's um, it's really scary. Yeah, that is that is terrifying. And I think... Um... Yeah, I mean to be to be one of those parents, um, you know, facing those shortages just so scary. And I guess um, you know, bringing it back to what we're talking about today, I guess it just is a reminder that um, usually at the heart of these consultations is usually you know an anxious parent worried about their child. Yeah, and I would just add as well, um, 
probably one of the situations where people are most anxious is for babies with allergies who have had to go on a special hypoallergenic formula mixture. Um, people who, you know, babies who couldn't tolerate other constellations, uh, of, of feeding. And so, um, you know, very much links into this topic and how we can approach and really kind of understand in some ways the helplessness, uh, around allergies in your baby. Yeah. And I guess also, I suppose one of the things we'll be talking about is when those um, hypoallergenic milks and type of hypoallergenic milks are actually indicated. I think that's um, that's an, an, a really important point as well. Mm. Well, I think this might be a good point to listen to the first half of our interview with Nicola Brathwaite. Um, we initially spoke about the initial presentation of um, cow's milk protein allergy And that is coming up after a word from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medical legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counseling service and e-care app, We're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. Now let's hear our interview with Nicola Brathwaite. I'm Dr. Nicola Brathwaite. I'm a paediatric allergy consultant from King's College Hospital. Um, From my South African accent, you can probably hear that I didn't come from the UK originally. I trained in South Africa in both paediatrics and allergy, but I've been a consultant at King's since 2005 as part of the busy clinical children's, children's allergy service, um, dealing with all aspects of, of paediatric allergy. There are two main areas of, of, cow's, of, of cow's milk allergy, and this applies to, to an extent to all, food, to, to all food allergies, but sticking to cow's milk allergy, it's the IgE-mediated symptoms, so immunoglobulin E-mediated, which are the classic immediate hypersensitivity rea- reactions, and then it's the larger and much more nebulous non-IgE-mediated group. I guess that can be a challenge, particularly because there are many other things that can cause a similar presentation um so is it that sort of combination of um gastrointestinal symptoms and skin symptoms that can kind of point you towards a diagnosis would you say or is there another approach in your kind of triage that we should be looking out for so 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 in the triage certainly the 
for, 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 for allergies, multi-system involvement is, is, is common and for non-IgE-mediated food allergies, skin and gut are the main ones. So if they've got both, that's that's a clue. Um, so a baby, a baby with reflux symptoms who 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 also has a bit of mild mild eczema that doesn't distinguish between necessarily between mm. the IgE mediated, but it does point towards an allergic allergic etiology. But I think the difficulty is the other way around. We all know how common gastroesophageal reflux is in infants, and the vast majority of children with gastroesophageal reflux will not be due to. Will, will, will not be due to, to to milk allergy. And similarly, eczema is common in babies, as we as, as as we all know. For most of them, it's not food allergy related, and and you don't want to go down the route of unnecessarily excluding the food. And I think a helpful way, one of the clues that that, that I that I suggest people look at is if if it's a unclear diagnosis and it's a child presenting with, for example, reflux, if the baby's otherwise thriving well in themselves. You've got time. Do a trial of, of, of standard treatment for gastroesophageal reflux and see if they respond. If they don't respond, and, and, and there's a and there's a suspicion of milk allergy, certainly you can you can you, you can go on to the next step, which we can talk about in a bit of how to how to diagnose it. Should be a trial of exclusion and importantly reintroduction. Mm. Um, and similarly with eczema, if um if the if, if the history is not clear. Quite often, someone will have said, "Well, have you thought about milk allergy to the parents?" And they come in worried, worried by it. Manage the eczema first. If it's simple eczema that's not needing regular topical steroids to control it, and it's responding to simple measures of emollients and occasional topic topical steroids, and there's no clear history of the flares being provoked by food, I would steer away from going down the restriction restriction route. But if um, if there's a strong suspicion, so history being absolutely key. If the parents have noticed a pattern that that since they've re- it's, you know, breastfed baby, they've started on formula, and since then the child's really sort of started to develop eczema, then then you may be dealing with allergy. Yeah, so that history is crucial, it's I guess. Absolutely and key, and and obviously difficult in a in a busy short GP primary care appointment to do. But I think the keys the keys with the food allergy history. And this can be this this can be used for for, for for any infant presenting with food allergy related symptoms, not just milk, is to ask about patterns, what 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 foods are suspected, what how soon after the ingestion of the food did the symptoms start if the parents are able to tell you that. It's not if it's been going on for a while, that's not always that easy because of, because of the delayed the delayed symptoms. Um Importantly, have they tolerated the food without a reaction? Because 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 with both non-IgE and IgE mediated allergies, you would expect reactions to be to to be consistent, right. and that they would react whenever they have 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 the food. So for most of these children with milk allergy, the vast majority of the presentations will be in the first six months of life to the or, or, or sometimes into the second six months of life. But it's quite unusual to present for the first time beyond that not impossible but again those will be a small number and they 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 may require more specialist sorting out but for the vast majority and the ones that cause GPs difficulties with should I refer should I should I manage myself they fall into that in, into that early in, into that early age group yeah and so it's, yeah it's taking taking history and I think if the baby's breastfed or, or also to taking a history of what the baby is having what formulas that have been introduced if they have um, also, for, for for a small number, what the mother is eating and eat, eating in her her diet, and again, this is something that often comes up as a question. And I, and and we used to, 
we, we used to be quite quick to say, certainly in the allergy world, I think we were quite quick to say a, a cut out milk from the, from the mother's diet. I do it very rarely now, unless there's a clear cut history of, 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 of a clear pattern where, 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 where the mother has noticed that in, in an exclusively breastfed baby that the symptoms seem to be related. Or the other group that I would I would consider restricting in the mother's diet are the or the very young infants who present with with, with proctocolitis symptoms, so a bit of blood in the stools, where quite commonly it will be to the trigger will be a very small amount, and it may well be in an exclusively breastfed baby. Okay, so for that for those kind of milder um, symptom milder presentations where the pattern does seem to be more clear cut related to say formula or or the the infant feed. Would you, you might not suggest then that the mother um, excludes milk from her diet? I would, as, as, a, as, a, first, 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 as, as a first step, I would try to establish on the history whether, 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 whether the symptoms were related to breast milk. If it's a baby, for example, that had been exclusively breastfed, mum ingesting dairy absolutely happily, and at three months age started to introduce some supplementary formula feeds and developed eczema, and you, 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 and the, you, you have a strong suspicion that, that, mm. that, that there's a non-IgE mediated food allergy component. That baby was clearly tolerating the small amounts of, of milk in the mother's diet, and and, the, and and you run the risk of losing the breastfeeding, which is obviously mm. really important to continue. So in that patient, I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest. In fact, I'd discourage them from cutting out. Mm. The, the, but the other scenario that you get, and we see this sometimes, particularly in IgE-mediated allergy, where they often tend to react to smaller amounts, is for a small number of children, and even with IgE-mediated allergy, it's not the majority of children, but you'll get the, the history that the mother has noticed that whenever she has a milky cup of coffee yeah. before she feeds the baby, the baby flushes, becomes red, sometimes sometimes more immediate symptoms, but mm. there's a clear pattern to it. That, that's apparent where the baby probably is reacting mm. to, to to the milk and the mother's diet, and 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 yes, then a, then a, a trial of excluding milk from her diet, and potentially reintroduce re, reintroducing with non-IgE mediated symptoms that are thought to be due to the milk and the mother's diet. So it's it, it's very important to remember 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 that improve the first part of the diagnosis is improving when you exclude the food. The symptoms are improving when you exclude the food, but the second part is demonstrating that they come back when you reintroduce it and that's the bit that we're we're not always very good at doing and certainly in a in, a, in an allergy clinic with very long waits for appointment I still see young infants who clearly seem to improve on an exclusion exclusion diet but by the time they're seen in clinic they've they've not actually tried reintroduction reintroduction and that's somewhere that really unless the child's had severe allergic symptoms that's something that really would be useful to to encourage in primary care really that conversation around the diagnostic test exclusion and reintroduction right okay and if well, the symptoms are reproducible then you then you then you can exclude further So there were a couple of kind of interesting takeaways um, from there from me about um, exclusion in mothers, which may not be necessary, you know, 100% of the time. And also this important point about um, making sure that reintroduction is part of the, you know, is the important uh, part of the diagnosis. Um, So I guess some cases can be quite um, straightforward in their presentation, but but there is a there is a grey area and, you know, there's a lot of more nebulous cases out there, I guess. Um, uh, Tom, what did you what did you think? Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that that is it, isn't it? It's um, 
uh, one of the things I didn't realize until we, we had kids was that <clears throat> you get this couple of week period where the baby tends to just sleep and then they stop sleeping all the time and they start crying a lot more. <laughs> and, um, but that's also around the times where, you know, things like reflux and, and cow's milk protein allergy, which I had no idea existed 10 years ago, um, can emerge. And often you parents come in, understandably, and completely correctly in a lot of distress and at the end, the wit's end, asking, what what can I do? The baby's crying, um, feeding all the time, not having sleep, all, all these, these stuff, which is so common. And... Um, and maybe without those sort of multiple features, you know, like the the skin and bowel symptoms that that might point you towards um, cow's milk protein allergy, but it could be. And and they say, well, what can I do? Should I exclude dairy from my diet? And I don't know what the right answer is there, but I, I think probably often I said, yeah, well, well, you could try that because mm. clearly you want you need to try some something. Um, so I just find that that's the gray area that I still think isn't isn't easy to navigate and um to say to someone no I, I think you should carry on eating dairy when I don't know for sure <laughs> it seems difficult yeah I think I think what Nicola would say is take take a history and can you work out from the history whether I'm but, gonna take um, a history <laughs> <laughs> you've got 10 minutes <laughs> what time to take a history <laughs> yeah. Jenny you were nodding as well it sounds like that's your experience too uh, very much so. I think I, I mean, I completely agree with Tom that that, you know, they, they call it the fourth trimester for a reason. And that period just gets so hairy, um, between baby noises, baby trying to change its breathing from oral to nasal, like choking, um, that's the most common time, as Nicola said, for eczema to present. Um, people are desperate for a solution. Why isn't my baby sleeping? What's that funny thing in their diaper? Um, and and it is re- it can be really difficult to discern kind of normal infant noises and behavior from something pathologic. Um, and, and I do, I re- I really resonate with what you say, Tom, like you feel you want to kind of empower the parents to begin to feel and trust their instincts and take agency over the situation. But oftentimes <laughs> the only thing to do is wait. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I thought Nicola's point about kind of the overall picture was a good one. Like if the baby is otherwise thriving and doing well and gaining weight, then that's really reassuring. And you can kind of reassure parents about that. It's it's just hard because, you know, on the one hand, you want to kind of say, yes, if you think that this might be a causal thing you've noticed, you can try. Um, but it's also very difficult in practice to exclude things from your diet if you've never done it before. Um, you're bound to slip up or not realize that there's milk protein in something you're eating. It takes a lot of diligence. And um, I don't know. I, I also, I heard her point really well, which is you don't want to inadvertently deter somebody from continuing to breastfeed given how hard it is and how challenging it is to then add this new layer of complexity. Oh, by the way, and you have to do all of this and you can't have milk in your coffee or whatever the case may be. Mm. Yeah. I guess I would like to know 
okay, in, in the child who is exclusively breastfed, how common is it to have the non-IG cow's milk protein allergy um, compared to a child who's been given a, a, a formula containing cow's milk protein? Um, mm. I, I've never seen a, a good answer for that. I don't know if anyone knows. Um, but if it was very, very rare versus quite common, then that would be useful to, to be able to allow the, or help the parents make a decision. Yeah, and I don't, I don't have those figures for you either, Tom, but I will say that in the populations I have served, they have been primarily exclusively breastfed and still have the occasional issue around cow's milk protein allergies. So I know, meaning I don't necessarily think there's a reason to believe that it's any more common either in formula or in breast milk, but I could be completely wrong. Mm -hmm. I've just seen it in both cases. Well, and I think it's, I mean, what you both bring up I think that is one of the thing one of the things in my experience is those consultations can be quite fraught as well you know you're dealing with a lot of anxiety um from parents and even if the child is thriving and well that that that's not the kind of lived reality for a lot of parents when their child is kind of crying you know through the evenings or, or whatever it might be and so that I think I mean I don't know how do you tend to um how do you tend to explain what's going on in those situations of like, how do, or how do you reassure and say, well, we've got time to look into this. I, I think that's quite a difficult thing to do. I'm glad you're not asking me to give you my explanation. <laughs> we could be here a Sorry, while. Sorry, that was more of a rhetorical how yeah, do you, okay. but if you, if, you, if you do have an answer, then I'd, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> if you want for our great explanations uh, section. Yes. Yeah. It's difficult. It is. Uh, I like the point. I mean, the thing I, probably the last thing I've learned uh, like a few years ago, but was about the reintroduction, re-challenging. Um, I, I think probably I wasn't pushing, not pushing, uh, suggesting that or urging that enough previously. And it's so kind of obvious now that you, you do need to, to reintroduce um, the cow's milk um, either to the, the mum's diet or to the, or if it's, if the child's on formula um, to prove that it is that because of that kind of regression to the mean slash, you know, things get yeah. better in four weeks yeah. uh, at this age. Yeah, I think that's important. And I think that is something that um, if you're not talking about it at the outset, when you're having these initial kind of conversations can get overlooked, particularly in the sort of structures of general practice that we have now where parents may not be coming back to yeah. see the same doctor um, yeah. about those problems so um yeah that's an important thing to convey and then the next bit which i think might lead us on to the next interview oh okay well sorry can i interrupt you can i just interrupt you on that point about the introduction i also just want to just like complicate this a little bit i totally take the point that it's important for diagnosis because it you know, you kind of prove the correlation. Um, yeah. But it's really hard to say to somebody who's like gotten to a good place by excluding from something from their diet and now like go back to this potentially problematic thing. Even if you yeah. know you can stop or go back. I just think I've seen a lot of people who, who are good. just like, no, yeah. I'm just going to... No, I'm I'm good. Yeah, I don't want to rock the boat. Yeah. Like, why would you want to go back to those really troublesome symptoms? So I do think that's also challenging. Actually, that is a point that does Nicola does pick up on again in the second half of the interview, which is a bit more focused on management. So why don't we have a listen to that now? 
If they did improve on the on the change of on the change of feature in hyperallergenic formula, it's pointing towards your suspicion that milk mm-hmm. allergy is the right diagnosis, but it hasn't confirmed it because, as we all know, eczema waxes and wanes naturally. Re- reflux may be improving just because the babies grow right. growing older. We all they all improve, or majority of them improve in the first year of life. So the second important part, and and the parents do need to understand this, is the trial of reintroduction Mm -hmm. and looking for a recurrence of the original original symptoms that were were suspected to be caused by milk allergy. If the symptoms do recur, then you've you've got your diagnosis. Um, and 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 we always get asked, well, how do you how do you reintroduce? And if you've got access to dietetic support that, that can be really useful in the community, but there are um, useful uh, published guidelines. I know as part of the MAP guidelines, they've got a handy guide on 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 how quickly to go. And it really it's broadly introducing the the, the milk back into the diet over the space mm-hmm. of a week. So 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 for formula fed infants, you 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 initially give one bottle a day where you've mixed some milk and milk milk based infant formula into it and you increase it on a daily basis and once they're tolerating the equivalent of a whole bottle um a day then then you can be pretty sure that they can go away and reintroduce mm-hmm. um that, that, that they're, they're not likely to be allergic um if they're on if, so, so this is what the diagnostic phase and so most of them will still the, 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 the reintroduction will, re, will will revolve around the formula the reintrodu- the reintroduction after you think they might have grown out of their milk allergy is a separate right yeah okay and just on the reintroduction for diagnosis so say how often is it that you will see that scenario that you mentioned where symptoms have improved just because of their natural course um and then when you broach the topic of reintroduction the parents might be reluctant to do that um particularly if reintroduction doesn't bring back the symptoms you know if you're suspecting okay this is not this is not cow's um, milk protein allergy. Yeah, so it, that's not an un, that's not an uncommon scenario, and I think what helps is to have had the conversation upfront at the start right. and explain to the parents at the point of excluding that 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 a very important part of the diagnostic test is 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 is, is reintroduction because often then they they're, they're expecting it. It's it's it, you, but you will have parents where they've been very where they where they're very convinced the child's the child symptoms have improved because of the milk and that they don't want to risk it. And I guess there it's getting a dietitian involved. And the other option, if we're being flexible with parents, is to is, is is to say, well, we haven't confirmed the allergy, but the slower way of doing it would be to would, would be to start on a milk 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 ladder type approach. If the babies of weaning age start to introduce baked milk into the diet and and increase it to tolerance. I have a conversation with all these children about the fact that milk allergy is likely to be outgrown. And with all food allergies, I, I also have a conversation with the parents is that we've moved from thinking prolonged exclusion is a good idea, but to thinking actually allergy is an extent of failure of either a failure to develop tolerance or a loss of tolerance of a food. And to let, for the body to learn to tolerate that food again, um, it's it's important to start to include small amounts as long mm. as that's safe, and that's what we're there we're there for is to be able to 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 advise on it. But if you can get the parents on board with with that concept, and most parents can get their heads around it. Actually, mm-hmm. I, I I seldom have parents that 
are very reluctant to try it. I right. can completely understand as a GP, you may you, you, you may get the resistant parents and those are ones to refer to the allergy clinic. It doesn't right. matter how mild the milk allergy was. We can certainly we can certainly look at that because the other option, if they're really scared of trying it, is to bring them in for a for a formal food challenge, which which generally isn't needed for for, for mild to moderate non-IgE mediated food allergy, but it's certainly an option. If you know, if anxiety or worry about rea reactions recurring is the reason that they're not prepared to introduce it, we doing it in a supervised way, which we can do in which we can do in hospital, is certainly an option. Okay, and then what about the um, reintroduction? You know, say you've been treating this cow's milk protein allergy through the hypoallergenic milk, through the exclusion. Um, at what point do you consider reintroduction when you think the um, child has outgrown outgrown the um, allergy? allergy. And I, well, I think the first the first thing to say is to is that any any guidance is is a generalization rather than an absolute, and there isn't an absolute. But broadly speaking, a period of exclusion for six months for, for, for six months is a good is is a good measure to use. So, okay. if given given that most of these babies present in the first six months of life. Re, re, a trial of a, a, a starting to introduce the foods around nine to nine to twelve months is a, is a is a good sort of area to think of okay. as this is a good point to start the milk to, to start the milk ladder. There are quite a lot of parents who come in with a very fixed belief that you can't start a milk ladder before twelve months. Yeah, you 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 can, and I, I suspect we probably I suspect I, I suspect that even six months is 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 for some people is 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 an, an unnecessary period of complete exclusion. But at the moment, I think six months of exclusion is is probably a good generalization. And then you try, and if they're not ready, you go back to where you were and you try again in in mm. you know, three to six months three to six months time. I think that's another conversation that 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 that. that is helpful to parents is saying that growing out of the allergy is a process rather than an an, an event. Yeah, and yeah. and the the milk ladders, which which there 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 are a number of published one published published ones. They all follow the same principles that that you when you when you are starting to tolerate the food, you're likely to tolerate milk milk protein that's been processed by baking. Um, which which alters it and makes it better tolerated, and and you're likely to tolerate smaller amounts before you tolerate large amounts. So you'd be starting with the baked goods, and then you go to more eggy eggy baked goods, or or, or foods that have got milk as an ingredient that are being cooked a bit more briefly, like pancakes or crumpets right. that sort of food, before going on to the 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 the, the dairy products and the, and then and then eventually working up towards the fresh whole milk. And some children will some children will get stuck at a stage they'll be fine with the baked milk, but they they're not ready for the the dairy products or the fresh milk. And that's not unusual. We what we can say to parents is that by school age 80 to 90 percent of these children will have grown out of their, grown out of their allergy. Um, if it's a simple just just milk allergy, and a lot of them grow out of it a lot earlier than that, but um, that that's a helpful figure for the parents to have in their mind as well. Yeah. So 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 I think there's there's probably two points that are tricky in that in that scenario. I think if you're thinking about the the diagnostic part of the exclusion and reintroduction. Um, I'm sure most GPs would be happy to do that. What you worry about is the is the, is, that, is, that, is that parent that now that they've got the milk on prescription and the symptoms seem better, don't want to go don't want to go back. And I guess we've we've talked a bit about having the conversation up front. You may you may you, you may want to be more more 
more, 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 more firm about that. Of you know, we 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 are only prescribing this milk as a trial, and and an, the, the second important part of the test is the is 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 is, is the re, is the reintroduction. Um, I, it's difficult. Um, the, the, at the moment, the milks are only available on prescription, so there is potential for 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 parents to want to to, to want to stay on it to, to stay on it longer. And I. The ones that get to my clinic tends to be in the well. A, I'm, a, I'm not I'm not the GP having to prescribe the milk, and B, um, and and B, they tend to be the ones that do need to, to do need to stay stay on it. I think if they if they are staying staying on it, I think it's very helpful to get a dietitian involved. There are mm-hmm. most people have access to community diet dietitians, and I think at the very least these 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 families should be supervised because quite often when you go when you've got the time to go into the dietary history a bit more once they're into the age where they're eating solid foods you go through the dietary history and you realize they're actually having a fair old amount of dairy because they just didn't really understand complete exclusion and it's much easier to have that conversation of you are now tolerating some dairy i think we should be moving moving back to the the other thing is for the non-ig mediated group that are over six months, soy formula is an option, um, which is an over-the-counter one. We wouldn't recommend it under under under, under six months. Um, I generally wouldn't switch if they're really doing well on a on a hypoallergenic formula. I'd keep it, keep them on it, and and but they certainly shouldn't need it. Even even the ones with multiple severe food allergies shouldn't need it beyond two but beyond two years. And again, if they for that for the, for those patients who are on it beyond a year, it, I think you, you'd definitely want a dietitian involved because they can be the prescribing dietitian can give some good steers on that. Um, so reintroduction, um, were there any useful tips in there for you, Jenny? Yeah, I think that was helpful. It was definitely helpful to kind of remind remind us that the conversation about reintroduction needs to happen at the outset. Um, and I also really liked a lot of what she said, just about, you know, kind of reminding us that every person is on their own timeline. And you know, we can reassure people by mentioning that figure about 80 to 90% of kids by school age have outgrown it. I found that incredibly reassuring. Um, and, you know, kind of reminding people that they might get stuck at a particular stage in terms of tolerance and that, you know, if they're not ready at around six months after exclusion to tolerate, then you can try again. Um, in three to six. And I, yeah, I, I thought that was very helpful. It was just like really practical advice. Mm, yeah. I also really liked the, um, how to describe kind of tolerances and, you know, needing a reintroduction is important to help bring that back as well, which might be helpful if you're trying to, to sell a reintroduction. Um, I like the mention of pancakes. Cause, um, I really enjoy <laughs> like eating and making pancakes for families are really fun thing to do so yeah it must be a yeah. for those kids. Like gonna say, i really enjoy eating pancakes no i do i do um I, <laughs> i'm a sort of lemon and sugar sort of pancake eater classic it's all yeah. chocolate chips around here oh, right. <laughs> saturday morning chocolate chip pancake tradition i really yeah. i know i never thought i'd be so sugar permissive <laughs>
Um, well, I guess I guess that can be a useful way into that conversation is about certain foods that maybe are missed mm. or in, chocolate yeah, chip pancakes. But, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Thanks. For I'm not too. a big pancake eater, but then I don't I don't have kids, so maybe this is um, <laughs> maybe it's uh, maybe that's why. Um, I think um, there, there's a lot more about management in the various guidelines, um, the MAP guidelines, for example, um, which is about management um, in primary care. Um, and I guess one of the things um, to mention is about conflicts of interest, because that has been something that has um, sort of been, you know, a lot of earlier guidelines have had the, that's been quite a, a difficult and contentious issue. Um, is that something you've kind of encountered, Tom? Well, I guess it's more in our, our BNJ roles, isn't it? We mm. we talk endlessly about conflicts of interest and we have, um, for instance, the policy in, in education articles that you read in the BMJ. You, know, or, uh, you can be sure that any author of a BMJ uh, education article hasn't got any financial conflicts of interest to the topic, which um, is, I think, pretty unique amongst any sort of journal or publication um, and I guess not unique um, when it comes to guidelines. It's amazing, not just in cow's milk protein allergy, but how often guideline authors have very quite extensive conflicts of interest. Um, and it's certainly the case, I think, on well, it's still on the, the MAP guideline. I was just looking at that section. And so I've, I've seen people say, you know, the first thing you should always do with a guideline is scroll to the end and look at the competing interests section. And... Um, yeah. Was that another BMJ editor? No, it wasn't. Said... It was someone on Twitter who, when I look, used to look at Twitter, you know, it's the kind of thing that gets retweeted, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but certainly, yeah, uh, there's a long, long list of um, competing inter- declared competing interests on the map from the map guideline authors, even though I think in the latest iteration of it, there wasn't any direct industry funding for the guideline and it was they did they did include more um they did address some of the the concerns i think around around industry um um influence um by for instance uh, um seeking advice from the gp infant feeding network i think they're called and others so yeah anyway that's my spiel about guidelines but uh, there's a <laughs> there's a lot more to go into that i think yeah i and i i guess you know, just we brought up our the conflicts of interest policy that we have for our education articles, and I, I guess it's important to say that our we don't have an issue with conflicts of interest in general. They are a reality for a lot of people, but I think our the journal's position is that if you have a, an interest that might be perceived to be influencing, you know, what what you the work that you do or the, what you might write about, that we don't want those people to be writing education articles you know I think we we feel that that shouldn't be informing Mm. guidelines and education and the things that influence clinical practice and one of the issues with these um cow's milk protein allergy guidelines is that you know they're they're funded by like Nestle or they have this involvement from kind of um formula milk manufacturers which have you know Mm. Even if in the most gen- generous reading, you didn't think they were influencing the content of the guidelines, you can at least perceive that um, that a, a milk manufacturer would have a vested interest in promoting a particular mm. type pathway of management. It, well, so, not, well, I guess we we know that it's not just the, the perceived thing, isn't it? That, that we know that people who think they aren't 
conflicted or that they can separate their views from financial payments made to them um you know they might often they think they're, <laughs> they're not influenced but they are and um yeah there's yeah yeah, yeah. Like oh, people... I'm just thinking about it from the reader's okay. perspective, but you're right. Like so often all of us, you know, for all of us, we're, mm. we're, that's one of our kind of cognitive biases. We're not very good at, at spotting when we've been influenced ourselves. Yeah. And people will often say, I can't be biased. I have a negative view of something. I have a negative view of the thing that I've received funding related to. And it's like, well, that doesn't mean you're not biased. Um, it's, yeah. it's, it's really tricky. You kind of, going to the COI declarations and you, when you see something in a, on a, on, you know, a group of published guidelines, it's really difficult clinically to understand how big of a grain of salt to place Mm -hmm. there, you know, like, does it completely invalidate the findings? Does it kind of invalidate the findings? Like, does it just mean you should compare to other guys? Like it's really difficult to understand exactly what that means you should do. I agree. <laughs> Very hard. Yeah, and in this case, I suppose there aren't any other guidelines around. It, it's 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 the map guideline or, or nothing, from what I understand. At least in the UK, very very influential. Yeah, I mean, there is definitely more of an awareness of this, and I, I think it will be to bring it back to the word you used at the beginning: a journey for these guidelines to become um, to sort of distance themselves more and more. And I, I think there's an increasing appetite among sort of the users and readers and you know the, the end users, the patients, and um, your parents and babies. That that these are you know free free from commercial influence. So hopefully we will get there, and we're on that pathway. That's great. It sounds like well, we at the end of our journey, Navjoy, of, of the episode. <laughs> we are at the end of our our today today's sort of mini journey. Um, so yeah, that seems like a good point to wrap up. Um, well. I'll just finish then by saying thank you to our guest, Nicola Brathwaite. And thank you as ever to Jenny and Tom. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you, Navjoy. See you all next time. And thank you, Tom. Thank you. Yeah, see you next time. And thank you, listener, for for listening. Um, If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate us, review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can send us any comments and ideas to practice at bmj.com. Um, We'll be back with you in a couple of weeks. Bye for now.